If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 21, 20 and 21, that as sin reigned in death, grace reigned in, and you're thinking he might say life because sin reigned in death, or you might think he might say that grace reigned in freedom because sin is bondage. But what he says is, as sin reigned in death, grace reigned in righteousness. And this passage that we're about to look at in Titus chapter 2 is very much about that topic, how grace reigns in righteousness. And it reigns in righteousness in a manifold way that we need to understand because it is a tremendous encouragement. This is a little letter written by a pastor to another pastor, an apostle Paul to Titus, who's pastoring a congregation in Crete, uh, a place with a lot of cultural challenges for Christians. And throughout this letter, he shows a great concern for the life of the congregation, for the way that they live, for the character of the congregation, for their behavior, not just towards one another. And he's got his mind on that here in chapter 2, but also in their relationship to their community. He's got his mind on that, especially in chapter 3. But in the course of addressing those things to Titus, they're things that we learn about what Jesus intends to do in us by grace. And I want us to give consideration to those things together today. Before we read God's word, let's pray again and ask for his help and blessing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need your word as much or more than we need food. But we also need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, to give us spiritual understanding, to deal with our hearts about the things of the word which he himself inspired. And so we ask for that, O God. Speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, 
to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. With purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority let no one disregard you. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. It's a joy to be with you, saints of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. This place is a, a refuge for me and a place where I have found my soul strengthened often in my life. And it's been a delight to fellowship with some of you and with your pastor this week. And I am thankful for the contributions of this congregation to the institution that I serve. And as we look at God's word this morning, we're getting to listen in on a word of encouragement and exhortation from a pastor to a younger pastor. And you can, you can tell it, the very first sentence says, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. He wants Titus to speak things that are fitting for sound teaching, helpful teaching in the life of the congregation. And he describes for us what they produce. And I especially want to give our attention to verses 11 to 15 today, although we will not ignore the previous 
verses, and I want you to look for four things that are said here. Paul tells Titus that the grace of God has appeared, and of course that's a way of drawing attention to the appearance of Jesus Christ in his coming. The two comings of Christ are mentioned in this passage. Did you notice that? The the grace of God has appeared. That's the first coming of Christ in his incarnation and ministry and crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection and ascension, his first coming, the grace of God. The grace is personified in the coming of Jesus Christ in the language of Paul here, but we're also to live looking forward to the future appearing uh, of Christ as he comes in final judgment and consummation and glory. So the whole of the Christian life is to be lived between those two appearings, but Paul draws attention to four things that God's grace does between those two appearings. First, God's grace saves. Then, God's grace teaches. Then, God's grace hopes. And finally, God's grace works. I want to look at those four things which are laid out for you in verses 11 to 15. Notice God's grace saves. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all men. Verse 11, then God's grace teaches. What does it do? It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Verse 12, God's grace teaches. Then what does it do? It looks. It looks for what? The blessed hope. It teaches us to hope. Grace hopes. Looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Verse 13, grace hopes. And then, what does Jesus redeem us for? Not just so that we would be declared right with God, but listen, that we would be redeemed from every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Grace works. So let's look at that today in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. The first thing I want you to see is that grace saves. Paul tells us that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. And we need to pause and ask ourselves, what does he mean by that? Does does Paul mean that all mankind has been saved? That Christ has saved every last person? No, that's, that's not what Paul means. What then does it mean that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people or all men. Well, in this passage, it's pretty straightforward. He means all 
kinds and classes of people have been saved by the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's in fact just given you a few examples of those kinds of people that are in the Cretan Christian congregation. Some are old. Some are young. Some are men. Some are women. Some are slave. Some are free. But God's grace through Jesus Christ has been at work in all their hearts and lives. And he even describes some of the ways that God's work has been at work in their lives. So what this passage means is not that every last person is saved. It's not teaching universalism. It's teaching that God's grace in Jesus Christ has impacted all kinds and classes of people as illustrated in Titus's own congregation. They're not all alike. They don't come from the same background. He could have added what he adds elsewhere in Galatians and in Romans. It saves Jewish people who trust in Christ and Gentiles who trust in Christ. Christ has come to save all kinds and classes of people. But the second thing I want you to see is he doesn't just mean Christ came so that your sins would be forgiven and you would be accepted and you would be pardoned for your sin. Here, salvation includes that and more. When we are saved, we are accepted and pardoned. That's what, when, when your pastors talk about being justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, what they mean is you are counted righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of your own righteousness. You are accepted and pardoned, not because you deserve to be accepted and pardoned, but because Christ has lived and died in your place and you trust in him. So your acceptance by God and your pardon by God, his declaration over you not guilty, is not based on anything you have done or deserved, nor is it based on anything that you will subsequently do. It is entirely based on what Jesus did. And you, you even get this emphasis on this in the language that Paul uses here, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. It's not you bringing salvation to yourself. It's the grace of God that has appeared doing this. Interestingly, um, there's, there's a very famous world religion scholar who's not a Christian who, who wrote a book on world religions. He teaches world religions at Boston University, and he observes that Christianity is the only major world religion that cares much about doctrine. And he says, now why would that be? And, and he says, it's because Christianity alone among the world religions says the way of salvation is not through your self-improvement or your behavior, it is through what God has done on your behalf in Jesus Christ, and therefore, that has to be taught as doctrine. You're not being given good advice about how to live. It's a rough world out there. Here's some good advice about how to live. You're being told the way that God has saved you. 
But in this passage, it's clear that Paul not only has on his mind the fact that Christ has brought our salvation in the sense of our justification, but especially has on his mind the change of life that comes when God saves us. He not only pardons and accepts us, he changes us. And you see an example of some of the kinds of changes that he mentions in uh, verses uh, 2 to to, uh, 10. Uh, Older men, once dead in trespasses and sins, as we were reminded this morning, are now what? They're temperate. They're dignified, they're sensible, they're sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women are reverent, they're not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, and they teach what is good. In other words, their lives have been impacted by the coming of Christ. And isn't it interesting that Paul talks about the fruit of God's grace in their lives in terms of doctrine. Look back at verse 1. As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Notice, and then what he goes on to talk about in verses 2 to 10 is what we would call ethics. He says, speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine, and then suddenly, from 2 to 10, he talks about what we would call ethics, how you live, your behavior. You know, we, we will often talk about doctrine and duty. And of course, that that division of talking about doctrine and duty or faith and life or theology and practice comes right out of Paul's writings. He does that in the letter to the Romans, right? 1 to 11, doctrine. 12 to 15, duty. He does that in Ephesians. 1 to 4, doctrine. 5 and 6, duty. It's, it, he does it in Philippians. Paul loves to talk about doctrine and then show how it works out in the Christian life. But here, he calls these words that he uh, is saying to Timothy fitting for sound doctrine. So for believers, sound teaching involves not just doctrine, but also exhortation to Christian living. And Paul expects the salvation that Christ brings to bring about newness of life. When we are saved, we are not only rescued from sin's penalty, God begins to break sin's power in our lives. And Paul is reminding us here that God's Grace is at work in our lives in all kinds and classes of people in this way. Grace is reigning in righteousness. Or as he'll say in verse 11, God's favor has appeared with saving power. God's favor in our lives is not powerless, it produces change. I I remember one pastor putting it this way. God's grace does not make change unnecessary. God's grace makes it finally possible. God's grace doesn't make change in our lives unnecessary. It means that we're finally possible 
able to change. It changes us and makes us able to change and grow. And Paul's pointing to that in this passage. Every single member of the flock is called to live by grace, to live and grow in righteousness. And Paul is commenting here that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Grace saves, and when it saves, it doesn't just pardon us for sin, it begins to renew us in the whole person to live for God. It changes us. So since Christ appeared, Paul is saying, manifesting God's grace to all kinds and classes of people, all kinds and classes of people in the Christian church are enabled and called to live a life of godliness. Then he says, look at verse 12, grace teaches, grace instructs. What does it do? Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Where grace reigns, grace trains. Grace teaches us. It instructs us. And notice Paul puts it negatively and positively. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Paul views ungodliness, living life, not towards God, not under God's gaze and for God's glory as a fundamental challenge in this world because this is an ungodly age and an ungodly world that's not helping you live towards God. So he says, you actually have to learn how to deny ungodliness in yourself, to renounce it, to repudiate it. And you can only do that by grace. Some of you can testify to besetting sins that you have fought and prayed against for years, and you only gained some measure of growth and victory when you were palpably aware of the Holy Spirit overcoming something that you could not overcome yourself. You need to deny ungodliness, and that is not easy to do. It requires the help of the Holy Spirit. Mark and I were at a pastor's conference a number of years ago, and a very famous pastor stood up, and he said, I'm amazed that I am still a Christian. He had been, he'd been a believer at that time almost 50 years. And then he went on to say later in that sermon, do you know why I'm still a Christian? Because of the power of the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. That's why I'm still a Christian. It... We need the power of the Spirit in order to deny ungodliness and live the Christian life. So Paul starts off by saying you've got to say no to ungodliness. And then he goes on to say worldly sinful desires. We live in the world, friends. We live in the world. And the world's outlook and attitude permeates even us. It permeates even us. I'll tell you one thing that I'm keenly aware of. We live in a materialist culture. I can see how that permeates my heart. 
And, and that affects me negatively, and it leads me to have what? Worldly desires. And, and Paul says, God's grace teaches you to deny those worldly desires. And then positively, three things. Notice what it says. And to live sensibly. And have you noticed in this passage, Paul is all excited about being sensible. Uh, verse 2, older men are to be sensible. Younger women are to be sensible. Verse 5. Young men are to be sensible. And then here it is again. What does grace teach us? To live sensibly. Um, some of your translations may call that soberly. Some of them may use the word temperately. It's, it's the language of self-discipline and self-control. He, he, he wants ourself to be under control. And again, you, you can only do that by the help of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to live sensibly. He wants us uh, to exercise self-discipline and self-control. And then what else does grace teach? It, it teaches us to live righteously. And I, I think this probably has in mind especially the second table commands to love your neighbor. You know, Jesus will summarize the whole law as love God and love your neighbor. This probably points to those obligations towards one another. And it takes God's grace to do that because your neighbor sins against you. And you're sinful. And so to live righteously in relationship to your neighbor, it takes grace. Or, or to live godly. That's the third thing. Godly. And notice, godly in the present age. Not just then and there, but here and now. To live sensibly and righteously and godly right now. You, the, the, the accusation against Christianity is out there that Christianity, all it cares about is pie in the sky, by and by. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, right now. The grace of God is at work right now in your lives. God cares about right now. We, we quoted the Ligonier statement on Christology this morning. One of the, one of the mottos of Ligonier's uh, radio ministry is right now counts forever. That's kind of what Paul is saying right here. Right now counts forever. He wants you to live godly. What, what does that mean? It, it's living in a Godward way. A couple of examples. Abraham, you remember in in Genesis 16, Abraham is so faltering in his belief that God will give him a son through Sarah that he allows himself to be talked into having a child by Hagar, his concubine. Sarah's maid. And he does that, and it's one of the lowest points of Abraham's life. And then Genesis 17, 1 opens with God saying, Abraham, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless or whole or have integrity. Now, when he, walk before me is Genesis language for walking with God, communing with God, living with God, living a Godward life. Boy, did, boy, did Abraham need to have that encouragement right now. Live like 
I exist, Abraham. Live like I've made you a promise to give you a son. Live like you really believe you, you, you trusted in me, and it was reckoned to you for righteousness in Genesis 15, 6, but you didn't live like it in Genesis 16. So live like I'm alive, Abraham. Live to me. Or Daniel. Think of, think of Daniel. Daniel's told, don't pray to anyone uh, but the monarch. And Daniel opens these windows up just like he normally does, and he prays to God. Why? Because he wasn't afraid of the consequences? No, but because he was living a God, he was living a Godward life. God's more important than anyone. He's not going to allow the threat of death to keep him from living a Godward life. Life. Paul wants us to live a Godward life, sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what grace is up to in our lives. It's teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And it's teaching us to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. And Paul sees this as important for our Christian witness. Look at the language that he uses about uh, young women. Young women living godly lives. Do you know what that leads to? Verse 5, it leads to the word of God not being dishonored. When, when Paul says, when, when the world around your church sees godly young women living godly lives, it keeps the Word of God from being dishonored. It, it bears witness to the world. No matter how young you are in this congregation, your life can bear a witness to the world that God is true, that the Bible is true, that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and that grace reigns in righteousness just by the way you live. It, not in extraordinary ways. It doesn't have to be like Daniel or Abraham. It can be in very ordinary, common ways. I've, I've often been struck simply by believers being able to keep on believing when the Lord put them through trials. And I've often thought, Lord, do I have the faith of that young woman that just showed up in my office looking for encouragement to, from me because she's going through a trial, and it's already apparent to me that the fact that she's there shows me that she does have faith in that trial. She's just wanting me to confirm to her what the Word of God already says. And what does that end up doing? It ends up encouraging me. Anybody in this congregation can give a testimony in your life that leads to the Word of God, not being dishonored. And the Apostle Paul says here, this is what grace does. It teaches, it instructs. The salvation-bringing grace of God is a teacher of godliness. Third, grace hopes. Grace hopes. Look at, again, Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Grace is always looking for what is to come. One of the ways to fight worldliness is to remember that this world will not last forever. That the new heavens and the new earth are coming 
that Jesus is coming, that it will always not be thus, that things are going to change. And, and I'll tell you, my temptation is to look for hope in temporal things. Maybe these hard circumstances will change. Maybe the trial will not be prolonged. Maybe the pain will not be so deep. Maybe it will eventually abate. And here, the Apostle Paul reminds us, our blessed hope is on the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. The Christian life always looks to that as the final hope, the culminating hope. So that no matter what happens here and no matter what happens in our circumstances, that hope will not change. Your circumstances will change. Your situation will change. And it will not always change for the better. We're, we're, we're not assured that everything here will turn out for the better. But we are assured that he will come. And when he comes, he will make all things right. For, for some Christians, that will be the only happy ending. Looking for the blessed hope. You've got to have grace to be able to look. How often do we just completely forget about the blessed hope to come of his appearing. How often do we just completely, isn't it wonderful that you get to come here at least every Lord's Day and sing songs about that hope? You know, that partly that's what where shall I be is trying to get you to think about. You know, it, that is a happy, upbeat song, but it is a really serious song. Don't let the happy tune fool you. It's asking you some serious, hard things in those questions, but it's trying to get you to realize this is not going to last and that is going to come. And I need to ask, where shall I be? One last thing. Grace works. Listen to what Paul says. What did Jesus do? He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. By the way, Paul interprets for you the Christian meaning of the passage you read in Exodus chapter 19 this morning is your scripture reading. One of the things that Moses says to the people of God is, if you obey me, you'll be my treasured possession. And here's the Apostle Paul saying that Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawful deed, lawless deed and purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So Christ gave himself to purify you to be his own possession, and you'll demonstrate that by good deeds. Now, if, if you'll turn with me to Titus chapter 3, I want you to be absolutely clear on the relationship between your works in salvation 
and the good deeds or good works that he's talking about here. Because Paul does not say, you are saved by your good works. And he does not say that you are saved by faith plus your good works. Paul always and everywhere says that you are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus to good works. Not by good works, but to good works. And he says it in the very next chapter. Look at his description of this uh, in chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Verse 8, so that those who believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. He did not save you by good deeds. He did not save you by works. He saved you so that you would be careful to engage in good deeds. Those good deeds do not contribute to your salvation, to your justification, to your acceptance with God. Paul is making it clear that God does not say, clean up your act, straighten up, fly right, get your life together, and then I'll save you. Then I'll forgive you. Then I'll accept you. Then I'll pardon you. Then I'll declare you right. No, He cleans you up, he accepts you, he pardons you, he declares you not guilty so that you can live the life that he created you to live. It's the same thing that he says in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. So if... Crystal clear, you're not saved as a result of works. You're saved by grace through faith, and that does not come from you. It's a gift of God. You don't earn a gift. God gives it to you. So he said about five different ways in those two verses that you do not save yourself by your works. Then he says, very next verse, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved by good works, you're saved for good works. You're not saved by your works, you're saved to good works. They are the result. Your works are not the basis of your acceptance by God, they are the fruit of that acceptance. They are not the root of that acceptance, they are the fruit of that acceptance. They are the result of grace work in you. And Paul wants us to understand it. It's really important for us to understand that. It's it's important for non-Christians to understand that this congregation is not saying to you, we we are awesome. You know, God looked down on us and said, oh, they're the righteous. They're, they're, They're good people doing good things. And I'm, I'm going to accept them as my people. No, he, he looked down on hell-deserving sinners. And he said, I'm going to give my son for them so that they're pardoned, 
so that they're changed and so that they are made my children. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All because of his grace. And then they're going to live a different way. And so this, if, you're, if you're not a believer here, th- this congregation is not saying, you know, we're pretty good. Come be like us. No, they want to do good deeds, but they weren't accepted by those good deeds. They were accepted by God's grace. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And here's the thing, you can be too. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you're from, no matter what kind of person you are, especially that sin that you don't think God could ever forgive you. He delights to forgive you. In fact, he's more ready to forgive you than you are to ask for forgiveness. And if you trust him, these folks here would love you to be in their midst, under his word, serving him, living a life for his good pleasure. Paul wants us, he wants that to be crystal clear in our minds. We're not doing our good works to try to get God to love us. He has already loved us with an everlasting love in Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, he died for us, the ungodly, to make us the righteousness of God in him. We we were created, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us, to live for God's glory, to be fruitful and multiply, to cultivate and keep, to have dominion over the earth. And in sin and rebellion, we lost those precious privileges. But in redemption, God begins to restore those things. He begins to enable you to be what he created you to be. And Paul is celebrating that here. Grace not only wants to see you forgiven, Grace wants to see you one from a life of sin to a life of godliness, a life of good works, a life of obedience. Not so that you will be accepted by God, but because you have been accepted by God. And that little difference, friends, makes all the difference in the world. I, I, hope, I hope some of you have friendships. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's a close friend in this congregation or outside of this congregation. Maybe it's in a parental relationship where you know that that person just loves you. And it makes it easy for you to serve them. You can't do enough for them. That's what it's like doing good works for our loving, gracious, generous God. He just set his love on you. And it's a delight to do good works for him. But maybe some of you know a relationship where no matter what you do, you cannot please that other person, no matter what you do. And that, that will eat you up alive. It'll eat you up alive. Don't think that that's what it's like to relate to God. We're set free from the bondage of sin. Not to try and earn his love by what we do. 
we're set free from the bondage of sin by his love in the life and death of Jesus Christ so that we can finally be who he created us to be in the first place. And Paul's explaining that in Titus chapter 2. That's why Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. May God bless his word in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Work it deep into our hearts, especially now as we come to the table. Let us remember that we come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.